So far, we've gone through this gospel, and what it's doing is showing us who Jesus is. Um, In John chapter 20, verse 31, the apostle John would write these words, and of course, you're like, do we do this verse every time? Yes, we do, because it points us to the reason why this gospel was written. As a reminder, because you should always keep this in context as you read through a gospel. Why was this written and who was this written to? So in John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes, but these are written, these seven stories that he's going to tell over the previous 19 chapters, these seven fat, the, not, not these seven, these, these verses in these first 19 chapters are going to describe what, what John wanted to get across to mankind throughout history. Number one, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There is nothing more important than that right there. Secondly, that believing you may have life in his name. To understand that Jesus came to give us life and abundant life and eternal life. It's the blessing of the first, which is believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. When we look through this letter, I don't know how many of you have read the story of the Pool of Bethesda over the years. Probably many of you have read it many times. Whenever I read through a story like this, I'm praying God reveals something to me that's different than the times that I have just read it before. And usually what comes out of that is a lot of questions at first that I will have, and then God will begin to answer those questions. And so when I was looking at this, What you see throughout these stories so far is that John has made a point to show that Jesus came for everyone. Like we know that he came for the Jews and yet his own people did not honor him, that they would reject him and that the gospel would go into the Gentile nations. But you see in who he's reached out to so far that he has came for everybody. There is no group of people that he leaves out. Now we all have groups of people that we probably don't like as much as others. Is that not correct? Like, I, you guys have heard me probably say this before. I believe that God has called us to the highways and to the hedges to reach out to those that are lesser than, to try and bring them in with the food bank, through Celebrate Recovery, through all these different areas. You want to know the one people that drives me nuts the most? People who are well off, have money, and are snotty like they need nothing. They will tick me off more than anybody else and I have a really hard time with them. Uh, I think I've told this story before and my wife told me not to ever tell it again. (laughs) But to give you an example of Corey's bad attitude that uh, I'm being honest and real about is a guy came through our coffee stand one time in this red, shiny, brand new, uh, fancy car that I don't even know the name of because it's one of those higher uppity cars. And uh, he was asking us a question or something and we said, you know, it was something like back then we only took cash. Like that should make sense to some people, but it doesn't to everybody. So for like our first 10 years, we only, we only took cash, we didn't take credit cards. And he said something that was real snotty and uppity and rude and he drove off real quick and I was yelling at him as he was driving off. 
Because I thought, how rude, what a literal like jerk. There was no reason to blow up because I won't take your credit card, Mr. Uppity. Like it was, it rubbed me the wrong way. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Like people could have seen you hanging out the window, yelling at some car driving off and you're the pastor. Like, now forgive me and know that I'm human. And I've never done that since publicly. So. Like, it just is like fingernails on a chalkboard when I come across people like that. And so I, I point that out to say, like, when you read through the scriptures, you see who the uppity, wealthy, rich people are. They were typically the religious leaders of the day. And so to see the story of Nicodemus that came to Jesus a couple chapters ago that we read through, like, to me, that's Jesus going where Corey didn't, wouldn't have wanted to go talking to a guy that I wouldn't have wanted to talk to because he was wealthy, uppity, he was trying to figure things out. And now listen, I know the grace of God would be with me if somebody came to me like that and minister to him. So please don't misunderstand me. I love what Jesus did. And I hope that all of us could do the same, no matter how you feel about anybody. Can we set all that aside to say, I read that story and I think here's Jesus reaching to somebody that Corey would be challenged with. And he shows that he still has that grace for Nicodemus, one of the wealthy, most influential religious leaders of his day as a very young man. And then he goes from that type of person to from the top of the ladder of society to the bottom of the ladder of society when he reaches out to a Samaritan, half-breed, adulterous woman. Couldn't get any worse. Now, you guys have already heard that. Hopefully, if you're here for the first time, study it out in scripture. Historically, that Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Uh, women were very low on the cultural ladder of life, and adulteress would, be, would bring that down even low, lower. So you can't think of much difference between, much larger difference between Nicodemus and a Samaritan woman who is an adulterer. He goes from both sides of what the cultural ladder is and ministers to both. And then he goes to the nobleman's son that we talked about last week. And the nobleman's son is either a Roman official who Jews hated because they were Romans and they had you know, control of the Jews at the time, or he was a wealthy Jewish official, which meant that he was a Roman sympathizer and they would have been hated just as bad as a Roman official because they were sympathizers with those who were ruling over them. Nevertheless, just because of who they are didn't mean that Jesus still didn't minister to the man's heart and to his family, right? So he's showing us across the board that it's not just about coming for the Jews, but he came for everybody that people would normally look at and think, I don't know that I would necessarily minister to that person. He reached out to everybody. And then in this story, we're going to see something very similar that we're looking at today. Again, a people that most people would attempt to avoid in those days. And those people were what some of your Bibles say uh, they were infirmed, they were sick, invalids, they had all these health problems. And Jesus not only doesn't avoid them, but he walks amongst them. And I believe what we're going to see today is Jesus take somebody with paralyzed faith and deliver the grace of God to their life. John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. And in this, I just want to preface uh, 
we're going to see a few things. How many people in here like history? Okay, there's a third, maybe half. Uh, I believe that I'm going to bring some history to this story because it's important for us to know the historical aspect of Scripture and why certain things were written and talked about as much as just simply reading through a story. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18 says, After this, that's always referring back, right? Jesus healed the nobleman's son. After he had left Jerusalem, returned to Galilee, and then he spent some time there uh, after that feast. And then it says, There was a feast of the Jews. We don't know how much time took place in between those two events, uh, and we don't know what feast it was, but Jesus returned to Jerusalem. In verse 2, Now there is... In Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. Listen, John's getting specific. Why is he becoming specific? Because of who he was writing his letter to. Some letters were written to Jews, some to Gentiles, some were written to both. We believe that John's letter was written to both Jews and Gentiles. More than likely, he wrote this from Ephesus in his latter years of life. And so he was trying to reach both groups of people. Some people would have known where this pool was if they were a Jew and had been to the feast and traveled around there. And other people that read the gospel would not have known because they'd never been there. But they would have known what kind of pool it was based upon the description of the pool. And that's important because of what I'm about to get into. So there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people. We're talking probably hundreds upon hundreds of people were gathered around this pool. People who were blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time in the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Some of you, if you're not paying, if you're reading in your own Bible. Now, if you're not, then you're going to go home and read your Bible. And you're going to wonder, where was I just reading? Because what you may not know is the last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is not in several translations of the Bible. Now, it doesn't take anything away, but the last time I discussed this, I had people asking me questions. Why was my Bible different than your Bible, than what I read is the New King James Version, that sort of thing. More than likely, you're reading one of them new hippie versions called the NIV or the NLT or one of those. Now, I'm just teasing because I, I love the NLT myself. I like to read it for my personal sake. Nevertheless, uh, you, they, they are based on different manuscripts in the Bible. So, To explain this really quick, the reason why your Bible, if you read that, doesn't have it, and my Bible has it, is simply because it's based upon the manuscripts of the Bible that have been found over the centuries. And so the original manuscripts that were found, the the King James Version, New New King James Version of those, the simple explanation is they came from the original manuscripts that they found, which aren't original just the first ones that they found, and they based God's word in English off of those. And so in those manuscripts, it had verse the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Now, since then, how many know archaeology is taking place every day all the time? And so every year they find new things. So they find new manuscripts that are actually older than the ones that our Bibles were based upon, and they didn't have the second half of 
verse 3, and they had none of verse 4. They skipped to verse 5. And so many theologians believe and historians that the older manuscripts are actually closer to the original manuscripts, and therefore they must be truer. And so they leave those verses out, usually with an asterisk somewhere in your Bible or a little letter or number that directs you to what that verse says in other manuscripts of Bibles. Does all that make sense? And therefore, there's a slight difference. Does that change this story at all? No, because verse 7 actually references what verses 3 and 4 talked about, but they believe according to some theologians, that one of the scribes probably put a little side note in there explaining why verse 7 is saying what it says about people being healed, and he put in there the myth of, of why people would gather around the pool, and later scribes took that and they copied that into those manuscripts, and ever since then, that was part of it. And essentially, what is being said is, it was either in there, and the earliest versions of the manuscripts, for some reason, missed it. Or it's possible it was a side note that was put in to explain it even further. And they know from outside sources of the Bible that what was written in the last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 was a true myth. Like it was part of the story. And so... It's not necessarily in all your Bibles, but it has been proven to be a fact that that's what people believed. Does all of that make sense? And now you know why sometimes you might be reading a Bible that doesn't have all the verses of another Bible. Nevertheless, you can still trust the Bible because it's never changed anything in the big picture of the Bible. Got it? Now, there's another complication with these verses that we read, and that's the myth itself. And so after studying this out for a couple of weeks now, uh, I, what I will do is I will listen to what other pastors have to say. I will read commentaries. Uh, this time, because I've had a couple weeks uh, to read through this, I read literally some uh, studies academia studies uh, that were done dry, boring, and not fun to read, but brought some revelation to the history of this. And, and what's odd is that you will see some people preach when it comes to the myth of being people being healed by the pool, uh, that there was an angel. Some people and pastors preach that that was an angel of the Lord and that it was God and that People really were healed in the pool by God, and it's just another strange way that God would heal people. How many know God healed in strange ways? Uh, and so this was just one of those ways. But I also heard it taught that it was a Jewish myth, and that there was Jewish people basing what they believed and were hoping for off of this myth because the bubbling was probably a spring or water or they say that it rolled into two pools and so the priests had the ability to allow water to flow in another one and so when that happened, water would boil, would, would bubble up to the surface and people would jump in. There may have been, may not have been people that were healed, could have been placebo effect, but it wasn't an angel of God. I've even seen some pastors that preach that it was just the opposite, that it was an angel of the devil that it was a demon that would do that and it was completely false so why does it matter because what I'm about to tell you the next explanation that I gathered from the archaeological historical study is that if you understand who John was writing to then it makes a little more sense when he include great includes great details more than likely for the Gentiles 
So when it came to this pool, that history has shown that as they dug this up, they've thought the pool of Bethesda was in three different places over hundreds of years. The place that it's currently believed to be was founded in 1960s. I believe it was like 1964. They've dug that up. They've only dug it up 50% of the way so far, but they do believe that this matches the description in the Bible that this is the pool of Bethesda. But as they've dug it up, they found these little mini statues that were inside of the pool, and they were statues of body parts. And so in that, there was certain pools that were around the Roman Empire that were dedicated to this one God that was a healing God, and people would go to visit those to receive healing, and they would throw in these statues because they had to pay a price and make a sacrifice in order to, be a, to have the opportunity to be healed at these pools, and they found those inside of this pool. And so that God is called Asclepius, Asclepius, something like that, Asclepius. He was, listen to this, because I find this interesting, he was the God of medicine and health. He was the God of healing. That's what he was known for. His, he had daughters, which included two of the daughters. Their name was like Hygia and Panacea, uh, which we have modern words for, hygiene and Panacea, or whatever it is. His symbol was a snake on a staff. There were many pools around the Roman Empire that were dedicated, him, dedicated to him, and people would go like all these different places, right? And they have a lot, all of them that have been found are very similar in the way that they look and the things that were found inside of them. And therefore, if you were to have described one to a Gentile who knew who this God was, it doesn't matter where it was in the giant Roman Empire, they would know what God it was dedicated to. Does that make sense? They were actually like um, pools that were called healing places. They were healing centers. And it's believed that at these healing centers that this God would dispense his grace and mercy towards those in need. And because his focus was on healing the body, he was considered by many Greeks to be the God that was most loving towards humanity. Does that not sound familiar? In a lot of ways, nothing is coincidence. Now, this would explain a few things in these first few verses. Again, why did he give so much detail if he was writing to just the Jews? He wasn't. He was writing to Gentiles, and they would all recognize what kind of place this was. It had five porches, and it had two pools, and what was found around there. Number two, most people there would have been seeking something from this God that was similar to what Jews believed about their own God. And therefore, that also might be why you would find a Jew that had fallen on hard times in this place. Thirdly, for those who don't know that many of the sick and the diseased, they weren't allowed to be near people that were healthy. Some of them were required to live outside of the city. Women who were menstruating had to be outside of the city. Anybody that had any sort of bodily discharge, whether it was men in their privates, as gross as that may sound, or it was skin ulcers, whatever it might be, any form of bodily discharge had to be outside of the city gates. Lepers had to be outside of the city gates. Anybody that had anything that would make them appear to be impure and unclean would be outside of the city gates. Never would they have been close to the temple because they were not allowed to be in the temple. 
And so people were passing through by the ship, these sheep gate. Why in the world was there a gathering of sick people that would be allowed to be by the temple, by the sheep gate? There's a question for you, right? Unless that pool wasn't a Jewish pool, but it was a Greek pool, which didn't go by Jewish rules or Jewish laws, then there would still be lots of people that would be there. Does that make sense? A Roman Greco pool. Let me put it to you that way. And then when it comes to that, um, number four, John explains that in the Hebrew that this pool is called Bethesda. What does Bethesda mean? You already know what it was called, right, by the Greeks and the type of God and what they said about it. It was a place of his grace and mercy to heal people. Well, the Hebrews had a name for it. They, in Hebrew, they called it Bethesda. What does Bethesda mean? That it was a house of grace or a house of mercy. And it was a place where people could go to receive healing. So for Gentiles, it was a healing center. If you're first in the water, by grace and mercy of their most loving God, Asclepius. For the Jews, they used a Hebrew word that meant the exact same thing to describe what that place was. Are you guys getting bored of history yet? Okay, because it helps explain the story, in my mind, a little bit better as I read through it, why certain things happened the way they did. The main point uh, is that we will see the story of great grace by Jesus. Regardless of who controlled the pool, whether it was Jews or Romans for their God, it's described as having five porches. Do you know what the number five stands for? Grace. Thank you. So it was a place of grace. It was literally called the house of grace. People came there to receive grace. And so we will see in this story a grace with capital G that trumps all other ideas of grace. A grace that doesn't require you to be first. A grace that doesn't require you to be the fittest of the sick. And a grace that doesn't require you to be the fastest of those who may be lame. It's a grace that's not based on your efforts or my efforts or their efforts. And it's a grace that loves even the least of these. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there. So amongst the multitudes of people, there was a man who had an infirmity 38 years. Everybody say 38. 38 years. This does not say that he was laying there for 38 years. That's what some people believed. But that he was lame for 38 years. He had probably visited the place many times over the years. Some believe that this pool would have been the busiest time of year around the three feasts because that's when millions of people would flock to the temple for the feast. And so there'd be even more people that would go to this pool at that time. If this was a place to receive from a Greco-Roman God, then any Jews who were half uh, washy-ish on their faith or desperate for healing no matter what way they got it and completely desperate for their lives still would have visited that. Normal Jews wouldn't have even attempted to walk through that place because, like I said before, they wouldn't go near sick people. But listen, somebody who has a faith in God is passing by an infirmatory, a place where there is massive sick people gathered together. And you would have to be deaf and blind to not know what's going on in that place. If you were traveling to worship God, it would mean that you would have had to have passed by a bunch of people where you would have heard an endless wave of groans taking place in their life. You would have seen hundreds of faceless people in need. 
And more than likely, you would have rejected the feelings that that stirred up inside of you and tried to ignore the broken people so that you could go and worship your God. And yet Jesus does what most religious people won't do, and it says that he walked among them. He walked among them. Now listen, Jesus was coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate. Every festival is a celebration of the goodness of God. You guys understand that? It's, it's like, let's sacrifice. You remember that time that we were saved out of Egypt and brought into the desert and crossed through the Red Sea? That's called Passover. We're celebrating the goodness of God. You remember Sukkot, the feast of shelters, and that's a time when God took care of us while we wandered in the desert for 40 years. We never had new shoes, new clothes. We had nothing, and yet God provided everything miraculously that we would ever need because he was our covering. That's the goodness of God. Every single feast that's celebrated is celebrating the goodness of God. These people are going to celebrate the goodness of God while they're walking past the worst things in life. And yet Jesus decides that amongst the celebration of the goodness of God, that he's going to walk amongst the people that are suffering the most. He could have chosen more sanitary crowds. He could have went out and enjoyed all the endless activities that were taking place. He could have really celebrated with everybody about how good God is while people are over here suffering, but he didn't. He chose to be among those who were gathered together, sick and suffering. They were there, and yet they were lost. Little did they know that God was with the sick. Jesus, God in the flesh, walked amongst them. And they didn't even notice. Little did they know that this strong young carpenter that was walking through the crowd, surveying this landscape of pain and sorrow, was God. God himself, what they were really seeking in life. But listen, they missed God in their life because their eyes were so fixed on the water. They were so taken up with their own way. This is the way that I'm going to get healed. This is the way that my life will be changed. They were so caught up in a false belief that they missed the way, the truth, and the life. And I have to ask us this morning, how often do we allow our faith to become paralyzed because we are stuck waiting on something that will never happen because we're attempting to make it happen our own way, in our own time, chasing after something that's not true. And we never grow, we never move beyond what's holding us back. You're waiting for a more convenient time in life. 
You get stuck waiting for a dream or a vision from God in order to move forward. You're waiting on a sign or a wonder. You're waiting for revival to break out in the church. You're waiting to be compelled. You really want to have that feeling inside of you to, to stir you up. You're waiting for those right feelings. You're waiting to be noticed by somebody in order to acknowledge who you are and what you can do. You're stuck waiting for something that may never happen. This man was waiting for 38 years. Can you even imagine that? 38 years of being paralyzed. 38 years with dead legs. 38 years of having to rely on others to accomplish what it is you want to accomplish. 38 years of trying to figure out things your own way. 38 years of trying and failing. 38 years of hope deferred, as the Bible puts it, which makes the heart sick. I find it interesting that there's only a few places in the Bible where the number 38 is mentioned. And one of those places I, I feel like is completely connected when you hear this and you know this story. Now, I'm not a, a numerology type of guy, but I believe that everything is in the Bible for a reason and that these reasons point us to our God. Not that we live by a number, but they point us to our God, which confirms how good he is. Amen? Deuteronomy 2.14 says this, And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea and to, and to, until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years. Everybody say 38 years. Until all the generation of the men of war was consumed. Until all of the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. What's this verse describing? In context, this is Moses' swan song at the end of the wilderness wanderings. This is Moses talking about what was taken, has taken place in Israel's history as they wandered through the desert, but what was about to happen. It's possible that the Apostle John could be alluding to the fact that there was 38 unnecessary years that the Israelites spent in the desert. You're saying, well, it wasn't there 40. Well, the verse says 38 because they'd already been wandering for two. So he talks about 38 years of wandering. They were lost. They were hopeless. Listen, they were waiting to literally die off in the desert because that's what God told them would happen until this generation passes away before anything's going to change in y'all's life. Wandering, lost in the desert, and hopeless because of their sin because of their unbelief, not trusting that God would give them victory over their circumstances in life. Israel's eyes were stuck on having it their own way, which was the wrong way instead of God's way. And yet after 38 years, there's about to be a miraculous transition in life from the desert to the promise. In verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? 
I imagine in your own lives, if you've been sick and struggling with something for a long period of time that affects your health, that really limits what you can do in life, and you would be desperate enough, even in your Jewish faith, to go to a pagan temple, do whatever it takes to get some sort of healing in your life, that if a man walked up to you and said, do you want to be made well, your response would probably be, like, to me, why would Jesus even ask the question, right? Is this not another one of those strange things that Jesus says that we talked about last week? Like where it, like it doesn't even make sense. Like why would you ask that question? Do you want to be made well to a guy that's been paralyzed for 38 years? But there's a reason. Because anybody that's had a sickness for a long period of time and lived with that sickness knows that you learn to adapt to the sickness, that it becomes a part of your life usually, that you've made a workaround with it, that if God's not going to heal you, that you're going to make a way to be able to still live life even with that sickness in your body. And so it's quite possible that he was asking because if he was to heal this man, it would be such a radical transformation in his life that it would eliminate all the aspects of life that he knew up to that point. Like literally everything that he knew up to that point. And so it's believed that for, you know, this man, a lot of people believe that this is how he made a living. Like if you can't make a living any other way and you've got to feed yourself, then what are you going to do? You're going to be a beggar. And more than likely, he was somebody who was a beggar. And according to uh, concordances from olden days, they say that this man probably made quite a good living being a beggar. So it would affect his financial status, not receiving, you know, free support from other people. He might actually have to work for a living if he was made better. And not everybody wants to have that transition in life from getting support to working for a living in life by being healed. The, the second aspect of this is your sickness sometimes becomes your identity. It's what people start to know you by. You adapt your life to it, and then it's what you begin to believe about yourself and how you live your life because everybody else sees that with you. They identify you with it. This is how you have adjusted your life to it, and it becomes a part of who you are. Does that make sense? And then thirdly, he had found his way. Like as challenging as it is, he's made a workaround. He's obviously got ways that he gets places and accomplishes what he needs to accomplish that 38 years later in a world back in Jesus' day where sickness would often kill people and, and they weren't as, as healthy back then, that he was still alive 38 years later. And it's not believed that this was something that he was necessarily born with. So he could have been, you know, like 40, 50 years old when he was there which was fairly good age at that time frame. And so he'd adapted. And then finally, he had figured out a way to make his own way by relying on others. And so he's got a system. He's got probably friends or family that will pick him up and drop him off and come back and get him after he's collected a certain amount, certain amount of money. Maybe he gives those guys a little bit of tip. Who knows? Maybe he's supporting multiple people. Maybe he has more money than we can possibly imagine, and they carry him on a cot, and he lives like a king. I don't know. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying we, we don't know, but we know that he's used other people in order to get where he's gotten in life, right? And so you look at all of these aspects of, of why Jesus would say, do you want to be healed? 
Now, in this, I want you to understand that some people would even say that he has gotten to the place where he has taken advantage of grace in life. Do you know that you can be, that you can take advantage of grace? Now, some people would be like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. But here's the truth. Like, there's things that God does for us that people do for us, and it's grace that they do those things for us. And we can take advantage of the grace of others. We could take advantage of the grace of God. In fact, so much so that we call it, we have terms like greasy grace in the church, right? Where it doesn't change people's lives. They think they're okay. They just continue to live the same life that they've always lived. Probably who even knows if they've had an actual heart change. They just continue to sin after sin after sin after sin. So much so that the Bible actually addresses that issue. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, what does he say? After addressing that through chapter 6, talking about the amazing grace of God. And then he talks about the struggles of life. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Like, what's he saying? You don't think that, that you can abuse grace? Would the answer be yes to that? It would be a strong no. That was his point. That's what he was driving home. Like, don't think that you're okay by continuing this sin, continuing this lifestyle, continuing this way, continuing in the things that you do. After you've come to know me, don't think that my grace is there to just cover everything that you want to do in life because it's you, because you think that you're okay, that whatever you might think, that you're just a human, that you struggle. Like Paul's saying, I understand the struggle, right? I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. And yet in chapter 6, verse 1, he's talking about, should we just be okay with continuing to sin and expect that God's abundant grace, right, is there, that we'll get even more grace if we do these things. No. Does anybody say yes to that? There comes a point in your paralyzed faith where you have to ask yourself, are you settling for less? Because you have limited yourself by what you can do or what others can do for you rather than believing that Jesus, the God of grace, can offer you more than you could ever hope, dream, or imagine if you would just do it his way. How will you answer? You would think this man would have said like everybody else that answered said, yes. But this may point to the position of a man's heart when he doesn't excitedly say yes to Jesus. Instead, he gives an explanation. Verse 7, the sick man answered to Jesus and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Like, listen, Jesus just asked him, do you want to be made well? I would think that if you had been in his position that you would have answered yes. Yes, 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 yes. How is it that you can make me well? Like, let's do it, right? But instead, he doesn't answer yes. He gives an explanation. And when you read through that explanation, what I see is one of two things, and maybe they go together, is that he's either defending why he's still sick and laying there after 38 years, and he has to put up a defense to answer the question, or he's coming up with a bunch of excuses, right? Like, let me defend why I haven't been able to do it my way. 
I've been trying my way, my way, my way. And if you're going to ask me why, or why I'm, or do I want to be healed, I don't hear do I want to. I'm hearing why I haven't been. And I'm trying to explain to you because this happens. I keep trying to do it my way and it's not taking place. Or he goes into a bunch of excuses. Maybe it's the excuses that he's, he, re, he replied this way. Let me tell you about what has happened in my past. You understand? Over the last 38 years, what people have done to me, they have no sympathy on me. I've I've been a victim of my circumstances. I can't get up and run into the pool like everybody else. And so, yeah, I have all of these issues from my past that have kept me from being able. I'm not the fittest. I'm not the fattest, f- f- fastest. <laughs> Y'all know. And so he starts describing his limitations. In other words, let me give you all of my excuses for my paralyzed faith and why I am stuck in life. We often go right to our ability, correct? This is what I'm able to do and it's not enough, which is actually limiting God's ability. When Jesus asked or what Jesus asked uh, isn't in, in my wheelhouse. It's not in my box. I don't have those abilities, right? And the fact of the matter is, hear this, God does not care about your ability or what's in your box. It's interesting that after such a poor response that Jesus still responds in the way that he responds. Like, if you were to ask somebody that was on the street homeless, can I give you a million dollars? And they gave you all the excuses as to why they're not successful in life themselves, you might think, okay, I'll go to the next person. But not Jesus. In grace, he still looks at this man after hearing all of the excuses. And in verse 8, he says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And it says, immediately, the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. When I inject myself into the story, I ask, what would cause him to all of a sudden have the ability to do that? Did he feel a change in his body? Did he he feel the power of God? What, did he see something different? Did he, he see his legs start, like, what was it? Did he just put forth some sort of effort that he hadn't put forth in years? I don't know what it is, but all I know is this, is that by God's grace, it says immediately. What we do know is that once again, Jesus would take such simple words of life. Legs that were once dead were now alive. And as soon as Jesus spoke to him what to do, he didn't ponder, he didn't continue in his excuses, he didn't continue to talk about his past, he immediately obeyed Jesus' word and he began to walk it out. And he realized, after all these years of being at this pool with everybody else, all of a sudden he's healed. He didn't have to be the first He didn't have to be the fittest. He didn't have to be the fastest. It didn't have to do with this false belief. 
It didn't have to do with just trying another way. It didn't have to do with doing it his own way on his own ability. Ability. It simply had to do with hearing the word of God and then obeying God's word. The scriptures continue. The last half of verse 9, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he answered them, who, he who made me well said to me, look, he's still got excuses. Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. So instead of everyone around being like excited for the goodness of God and this man's life, I would think that after 38 years, there were other people there that had known this man. They, I mean, they might walk in and be like, I'm going to be first this year. Like, I just see, this is my mind, competitiveness. Like, you're looking around. I'm the one that's going to walk out with this healing. I'm the one that's going to win the lottery. You got all these mass people, but their eyes were so focused on a false way, their own way, on the water, that they missed the living water that he brought healing to this man. He gets up and he walks out from amongst the multitude. I would think that even he would have been jacked. Like when they ask him, you know, what are you doing? Like he would, I would think he would have responded. Like I've been this way for 38 years. You guys have probably seen me. I can't walk. Like you would think there'd be this great story with it. No, right away, he blames it on Jesus. Like he's still a man that doesn't know Jesus. He's just living this life of excuses. The outside has changed, but the inside hasn't. He's still looking to blame somebody else for what is viewed as faults or limitations in his life. Now, mind you, it's not like, you know, when he does this, they get mad at him uh, because he broke the law. Like God's commandments don't work on the Sabbath. That's the commandment. But he broke the oral law, which was the Mishnah. You guys may remember I talked about this a few weeks ago. What was the Mishnah? A Pharisee when it came to Nicodemus. People like Nicodemus, part of their job as rabbis, as religious leaders, was to eliminate any ambiguity within God's laws. So that if it says don't work on the Sabbath was the law, they would come out with a bunch of oral laws that they passed on to each other until it was eventually written down that would describe what work was. And so you can look up right now, today, it's still there. There's 39 headings of oral law that explain what work on the Sabbath is. 39. So not only do you do no work on the Sabbath, but now these guys, to reduce ambiguity so that you don't accidentally sin, have said, don't do these 39 things. Amongst the 39 things, those are the, the big topics on the paper. There's like tons of little ones under each 39 heading, under the 39 headings. So if you can imagine, like, when Jesus talks about straining a gnat, like, that's literally what the religious leaders were doing. And so they're looking at him not because he was doing work on the Sabbath, but because he broke man's laws, man's rules, man's idea of what God wanted for mankind. You know that we have those traditions in our own churches? 
Like there's certain things in every church that's a rule made by man, not by God. I just throw like one idea out there that, that gets me all the time, and that's the idea of what we do when we're singing, right? All aspects of praise and worship are physical movements in God's word, physical movements. It could be playing instruments, it could be singing. So there maybe isn't a lot of movement in singing, but there can be, right? But everything else has to do with bowing down, with kneeling, with putting your, your arms in the air, with shouting and, and all of these things. Like that's in the Bible, that's praise and worship. And yet you can come to some churches and if you put your hands in the air, then that's not allowed. Is that God's rule or is that man's rule? Like you might, I don't even know if you would get kicked out of a church for doing that, but you may be definitely the odd one out, right? Here, don't think that we're perfect. There might be certain things you do in worship that I might say, oh, too much for me. I'm sorry. Uh, come back tomorrow and we'll turn on music for you and do whatever you want in the sanctuary, right? Like, I'm, I'm not saying we're, a, we're above reproach in this area. Like, you can dissect multiple areas if you think that you're too good to be true. You are too good to be true. That There's probably multiple areas where we allow man's rules to override what God initially intended with what he wanted with humanity in his way. And that's exactly, like, we can be quick to judge the Pharisees because they were quick to judge others, but we should first look at our own hearts and our own ways and realize we're the Pharisees at times. It's so easy for us to look at somebody else and think, you know what, look at how judgmental they are. Look at those Pharisees, and even they were coming against Jesus. Well, we have hindsight 2020. We're able to see that what they were complaining about seems to be ridiculous in our world, but in their world, it was the way of life. It is, it, it, you weren't just a Jew by faith and you were something else as you, you went to work. I would call myself a, a farmer and my faith was Jewish. You're Jewish by nationality. You're Jewish by what you leave, but by what you believe in your faith. Your, your identity is Jewish. Jewish is who you are, right? And so to think that there was any other way, any other thought and criticize these guys as being too judgmental would be to point three fingers back at ourselves, right? Like, understand we're all religious and judgmental in different ways. And listen, when it comes to people being judgmental and legalistic, what are they doing? Just like the man put Jesus in a box, right, that was sitting by the pool, not thinking that it could happen any other way than his own way or his own false beliefs or whatever he was chasing after and all his reasons and excuses that it couldn't happen other than the way I think it should happen or I'll allow it to happen, the Pharisees put Jesus in a box. And they're like, this is the way that God moves. This is the way it should happen. And if it doesn't, then I'm going to get a little bit judgy. Can you imagine if you were judgy and legalistic in Jesus' day and the way that people were healed? Because we get very judgy about that kind of stuff in today's world. Like Jesus could say the word and somebody's healed like we saw in the nobleman's son, right? And we will see later on. Jesus could, the God could tell somebody to go dip in a bunch of muddy water. And that guy's like, that's ridiculous. I got better rivers where I live. And you would think, that's crazy. Why would he tell him to go in the muddy water? 
you could look at Jesus and he spits. He uses spit. That can't be God. That's ridiculous. God's not in that box. That's outside of the box. That's not okay. Who in the world would do something like that? Right? The Pharisees have God in their own little box and they're judgy about their box. And when you've got God in a box and you're judgy about your box, what happens? You have what I would say is instead of abusing grace, wanting this abundance of grace, you have a lack of grace. The opposite side. These are the two extremes of faith. One is grace, 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 grace abounds. I can live my life and continue to do whatever I want and I'm going to go to heaven because it doesn't matter about the leaven. This side is like grace for those who live righteous, who live perfect, who uh, are successful in our faith and in our life and it's evident in the things that we do and say and believe and that sort of thing and they're very judgy about somebody's life that looks a little messy. Here's what's interesting to me. Did Jesus know all things? Yes. Did he know the Mishnah, the oral law? Yes, he would have. Did Jesus know that when he told the man to pick up his mat and walk, that he was telling this man to break man's laws? Absolutely, he did. And yet he told him to break man's laws. Like that alone would wreck some people's faith. And so the man does it. Jesus knowingly encouraged him to break the oral law of what I would call is the religious right. Go in there and mess up their theology. What I want to point out here is that Jesus isn't interested, again, in just healing a person's body as we saw last week. Far more important is the healing of his soul, his spirit, transforming his life. But life transformation doesn't come by keeping man's rules. It comes by faith in Jesus and obedience to his word. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you have been made well, like you're better. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now listen. From our small group, we talked about this. Some people read this like Jesus is being really harsh to this man. I view it as Jesus being cautious, giving a word of caution to this man. Like, listen, you've been healed. You've been made well. Like, don't go up and mess, go out there and mess it up. Like, initially, this man didn't even know who Jesus was, right? So his intention may have been to continue in his ways, in his way of life. And so he comes to find him later to minister to his soul. And when you read this, you may get this idea, which most theologians believe it to be true. This man's sickness that he had was therefore directly connected to the sin that was in his life. And the truth is that Jews didn't separate sin from sickness. It was all one and the same. They believed that sickness was from sin and that sin would lead to sickness. And then Jesus could be able to go out there and he would bring healing. And he would say, your sins are forgiven and a person would be healed. He could say, you'll be healed. You know what? And then they would think that their sins have also been forgiven, that they've been set free. Like they were together, one and the same. Healing, deliverance, all of that 
is wholeness in a person's body. And so this man's physical body is healed, but he still doesn't know who Jesus is. So Jesus wants to give him this caution. Like, listen, you know how you got up here, got, got down there, is that you had sin in your life. Listen, when you go about your life, I want to caution you. Don't continue in the way that you once knew because it will only get worse for you. Now, does that seem weird? No, because Jesus tells this story, right, to a woman that was delivered of demons. Like, you were delivered of a demon. If you don't change the way that you live your life, essentially, they're going to bring seven of them back. It's going to be seven times worse for you. If you've ever seen somebody that God has set free from a sin in their life, and they know that they've been set free, and then they start to compromise, and they start to, you know, float away from the gospel and the good news and everything that God has done for them, and then they decide, you know, at some point they want to come back, you will see for them that many times it's way harder, a lot more difficult to come back after God has set you free. Like every time it gets harder and harder and harder in order to return. There's a principle to that, and Jesus is cautioning him about that. But what I want to also explain to you is this man had been spending years at a pagan pool, so as a Jewish man, we, don't, we look at him and we think, why would you have been there if you understand what this pool really was? Why would you have went to a pool of Asclepius in order to receive healing, but you were so desperate that that may have become your way or it may have been your compromise in life at that time. Like maybe he still believed in, in God, but he was compromising by going for healing from another God. That'd be like Christians who believe that Jesus still heals, but then we go to a place that has a bunch of crystals and hope that this new age thing is going to heal our bodies or we open ourselves up to all these different areas of life that is, is new age or Buddhism or mysticism or Hinduism and think that, you know, it's okay for us as Christians in order to go there and do those types of things. This guy might have been compromising in his life. Maybe he got seduced and really, you know, sold his soul to this pagan God. God. We don't know what it was, but if that was the thing, that's why Jesus would stop him and say, listen, don't continue in this way anymore. You need to change the way you think, the way that you, you live your life. He wanted him to leave behind the pool of water and the pagan lifestyle for living water and a new lifestyle. I'll close with these verses. Verse 15, so the man departed. You'd think that he got the story. He's righteous. He departs after Jesus talks to him and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Like, I don't know about you guys, but there's times where I wonder if this man's saved or he's not saved, but he just seems to, like, continue to make, like, I'm going to now go and tell on Jesus. Now I know his name, right? For this reason, because they found out who it was, this is the big plan and the big picture the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. This is a transition story in the Gospel of John that sets off God's big plan. If it wasn't for Jesus telling him to break the oral law, man's laws, then the Jews more than likely would not have been so upset that they would have killed him, wanted to kill him. What you don't know is that when it came to breaking the Sabbath laws, even the oral laws, if you did it accidentally, there was a punishment. I don't remember what it was. You can research it yourself. But if you purposefully did it, you could be put to death by being stoned. 
if you encourage somebody else to do it, it was even a worse offense that you would be stoned to death. And all of a sudden now, these guys are like, he encouraged this man to break the laws. We're going after him. Verse 17, Jesus answers them. My father has been working until now. You guys are worried about working on the Sabbath? Like, my father has been working until now. And I have been working. Like, he's saying he's working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because, number one, he not only broke the Sabbath, but number two, he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The big question that's answered once again in another story in the Gospel of John is answered because the Pharisees ask this question, who is Jesus? And it's answered at the end of the story. Jesus is the Son of God. He showed himself to be equal with God the Father. And for the Gentiles that are reading this story, they see that this Jesus offers healing like Eclepius, but he also offers something that that false God couldn't, and that is eternal life. The end of the story begins this new direction. We'll see now see how the Jews seek to persecute him for the rest of the book. It's also the beginning of a new direction for mankind, and we will see God's plan to save humanity from a hopeless desert life to a life filled with his goodness for eternity. As we close, let us not forget the lesson of grace. A man's faith is paralyzed by extremes. Our faith is paralyzed by extremes. On one side is our potential to abuse grace by abounding in our own ways. On the other side is our potential to minimize the joy of grace by putting God in a box with our own man-made rules. But the grace of Jesus sees you among the many. And for no apparent reason, he calls you into a new way of being, of seeing, of acting, of speaking, of thinking. And then we stand, and when we stand and rise to that new life, we discover that circumstances have somehow changed. They've been transformed. And we didn't do anything to earn that transformation. And yet Jesus miraculously makes it happen. Life doesn't necessarily become easier, but it becomes more manageable because those things that once paralyzed our faith now become the building blocks of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, your living word. Lord, I pray that we would hear your word this morning, that as the paralyzed man literally heard your word and immediately responded to it, he heard it, that was one thing but he responded to it. He was obedient to it. His obedience brought, brought that transformation in his life. The seed of faith was planted in the question, 
the response brought healing. Lord, I pray that that would be for all of us that's gathered here this morning. As we go throughout our week beyond today and we read your word, there's those times where it stirs up that faith inside of us that it would be more than just a stirring. But Lord, we would walk it out no matter what the impossibilities look like, what the limitations look like, what our excuses are. Have the faith to walk it out that we might see transformation like this paralyzed man saw transformation. Lord, we thank you for grace. Grace that covers us and grace that empowers us to become who you desire your people to become. To do what you have called us to do. To glorify you. Lord, we thank you that in all things, including the Pharisees seeking to kill Jesus in the story, that in all things, you are good. You are good.